Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston or Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Um, good afternoon, quite literally good afternoon, um, and welcome to the Irish Noir panel. Can everyone hear me okay? Great, everyone in the back able to hear? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So this is 18 years of being a school teacher. There's always somebody in the back row who shouts no. Um, welcome to the Irish Noir panel. As you can see, we took noir as sartorial advice <laughs> as opposed to genre. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, if I could just introduce uh, everyone who's on the panel. Um, I'll begin uh, immediately to my left, Owen McNamee, uh, the author of 17 novels, uh, a Booker Prize nominee, um, and a winner of this year's Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year Award. Uh, beside Owen Stuart Neville, author of six novels, uh, including the LA Times uh, or the LA Times Book Award winning The Twelve, and has been nominated for Edgar's, Anthony's, Daggers, and uh, the Old Peculiar Award several times. Beside Stuart, uh, Adrian McKinty, uh, who is the one who has travelled furthest to be here uh, from Australia, uh, the author of ten crime novels uh, and other assorted works that he may mention later, um, including the Sean Duffy series. Uh, which most recently won the 2014 Ned Kelly Award. And then beside Adrian, uh, Steve Kavanagh, uh, a lawyer, a debut novelist. His book, The Defence, uh, caused a bidding war two years ago. Uh, it has been released to rapturous reviews and has already featured on numerous awards, long and short lists, uh, including the Dead Good Readers Awards this evening. Uh, and I'm Brian McGilloway. Um, I'm in an invidious position that whatever I say about myself will either seem disingenuous um, or uh, arrogant. So the only thing that I will say about myself is that when I was 19, I played a shopping centre Santa Claus. <laughs> having, having both the depth of voice and breadth of waist required to carry off such a role, um, my eighth book is out this month. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Um, well, what I thought we would do today, we, we're, we're going to kind of chat among ourselves for, for about 45 minutes uh, and then we will have questions from the floor, um, unless we run out of things to say before then, in which case we will have a lot of questions from the floor. Um, but what I wanted to start with, I mean, the, the panel is called Irish Noir for a good reason. There has been an explosion in, in Irish crime writing in the past 10 or 15 years. Um, I was saying to Anne before we came down, the last time there was an Irish Noir panel here was in 2008. Um, and at that stage, I think there were seven Irish crime novels uh, came out that year, and it was considered a vintage year. Um, this year, there have been 33 so far uh, by Irish novelists just until now, and that's not counting various uh, big hitters who have books coming out between now and December. Um, so what seemed like a, a burgeoning movement in 2008 has, has exploded. Um, and I'm delighted that the, the four panellists joining me today are um, leading that, that, that field and leading that explosion. Um, I suppose for what makes this possibly more interesting and perhaps a bit strange, despite the fact, or including the fact that we've all dressed in black, you will also notice that we are all white males. Um, and much more importantly, again, we're all from Northern Ireland. Um, so despite this is an Irish noir pan uh, panel, we are in actual fact probably going to end up speaking about the, the effect that Northern Ireland's history has had in crime fiction, perhaps more than, the, than Ireland's history. Um, 
And with that in mind, I'm going to start with you, Owen, because while a number of us have written about the Troubles and have written about kind of post-Troubles, you have deliberately gone before. You've, you've been pre-Troubles with, with a lot of your books. <coughs> but what I wanted to ask was you also predated the whole Irish crime movement. Um, your first book was 1994 um, with Resurrection Men. Is it strange for you now that you're kind of seen as a crime writer when you were a writer long before that kind of crime movement? Yeah, I mean, I was remarking earlier on that if you'd done this in 1994, there would have been five people in the audience, and one of those would have been an undercover cop, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, but I always thought, you know, it's interesting that you know, it says Irish noir, but in fact, we're all Northern Irish, and my sense of the thing is that um, noir is a kind of Calvinist construct, it's, it's, it's about fate and destiny and, and your fate being predetermined, which feeds very much into a northern Calvinist mindset. And in, in, in a way, I think that the north of Ireland is maybe in some way the home of noir. Um, you know, and, and I had a kind of revelation about this uh, uh, about 1996. I was at a funeral uh, in, in, um, up on the shores of Loch Ney, a very bleak area, bleak windswept area. And it was a Presbyterian funeral. And uh, the men go to the, the, the graveside and the women stay at home. And we were there, and the preacher got up, and he stood on the side of the grave, and his robes were streaming out behind him, and this bleak wind blowing across the lock, and his book of laws in his hand. And he started out, and he said, Men, will you be saved, or will you be damned? And I kind of raised this as a home of noir. <laughs> <laughs> what did you answer, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the only Catholic there. <laughs> I just kept my mouth shut. <laughs> but in terms of, I mean, you had written crime thrillers under the pseudonym of John Creed. Um, but your work is essentially true, true crime. You're kind of revising, I suppose, history to an extent. Why that choice? Why? What, what's the fascination with kind of true cases? Well, it's not really kind of fascinating with true cases. I mean, I've, I've, everything from the, the Shankill Butcher to a book about the mysterious death of Diana Spencer in Paris in 1997. It's stories demand to be told the way they want to be told. And I, I, you know, I keep been drawn back to these because, because those stories demand to be told that way. I remember particularly that, that uh, Diana book, 1223. And I, I, looked, I picked up a, a book in a second-hand bookshop. I had no interest in the subject at all. And I, I picked up one of, the, one of the early books about the, the thing. And I read through it. And, it, and this kind of whiff of, kind of European noir started coming off the page. And I thought, oh, please. I went home to my wife and said, look, you know, I've found this book. And I'm thinking of writing this story. And she said, oh, and please don't do that to yourself. You know? So it's, it's the other day. The stories dictate how they, how they tell themselves, and particularly with, with the North of Ireland and everything on there, they, you almost feel a kind of responsibility to delve down into these things and, and, and find, the, the, find the real stories behind the headlines. Adrian, with you, because Owen kind of, I suppose, predated the Troubles, um, with your first book, Dad I Well May Be, you obviously were from Northern Ireland and moved to New York, and your book is about a Northern Irish man in New York. Was it a deliberate kind of first step to take the Irishman out of Ireland, or was it again just the case that that was a story that presented itself? Yeah, I mean, I lived in I lived in New York for about seven years, and for three of those years, I was an illegal immigrant. And when you're an illegal, um, you meet a lot of dodgy characters, um, and so it was just these people who were spouting all this free dialogue all the time and in these ridiculous situations. And I thought, well, this would be an easy um, idea for a novel just to take all this free dialogue, put an Irishman in New York and basically put him in my house where I was living or my apartment with all the people I knew, just change the names and I didn't have to do much more work. I added one or two more killings than happened in real, <laughs> than happened in real life. 
Uh, but apart from that, it was just um, a lazy man's way of writing a first novel. I love the way you said I met dodgy characters. You meant dodgier characters, yes. obviously, <laughs> than your good self. Um, now, with the most recent book, so you have not only come back into Northern Ireland, but right into the very heart of the Troubles uh, with the Sean Duffy series. Um, again, what was the motivation for that, or, or what kind well, of brought you um, to that point? If I could tell a brief uh, story, in, in, in 2004, after Dead I Will Maybe had come out, and um, it hadn't sold many copies, but it got good reviews, and um, it had attracted a bit of notice, and I had this opportunity to pitch um, um, something to the BBC in Belfast, and, uh, and I thought, this is in 2004, so I thought I had the greatest idea for a TV show ever in the history of the world, and that was a 1970s cop drama set in Belfast, uh, and so it like the Sweeney, and I said, so I was pitching this to this guy at the BBC, and I was going, now this is a fantastic idea, because you've got the flares, you've got the trousers, you know, you've got the, the clothes, 70s clothes, and 70s music, and 70s cars, you just do it like the Sweeney, and if any of the actors ever give you any problems, you just have them get blown up, and <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and explore. so I pitched this idea, and this is before Life on Mars came out and basically stole my whole concept. Um, and I pitched this idea to this guy at the BBC, and I said, so what do you think, cop show Belfast 70s? And, uh, and I was convinced completely that it was a winner, because um, there hadn't been any crime drama set in Belfast ever, really, apart from Harry's game, and until like, the fall came out. And, and also I thought, you know, traditional cop show and the era. And he leaned forward, and um, there was an older gentleman, and he said to me, young man, and he says, yeah. I go, yes. And he says, I have to tell you something. And he goes, yes. He says, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and I said, wait, the worst idea you've ever heard? And he says, yes. He says, that's the worst idea. And I said, what, well, why? What's bad about it? And he says, well, nobody in Northern Ireland wants to watch anything about the Troubles. Um, nobody in England wants to go anywhere near anything to do with the Troubles. And as we're trying to sell this in the Republic, they just want to forget that Northern Ireland actually exists. And, and, and you think I could pitch this to America? I mean, that's absolutely great. They still think it's the 1950s and it's the Ireland of the quiet man. So they're just going to be completely baffled. And he said, so if I can give you some advice about your writing career. And he said, you know, you're writing about New York. You're writing about it. Just, just avoid writing about Northern Ireland. Um, if you're concerned about selling books. And so I listened to that advice um, for about eight years, and I wrote about everywhere else I could think of. I wrote about Denver, where I was living at the time. I wrote about bloody Cuba, where I'd visited for a week. You know, I, I wrote about everywhere but Northern Ireland. And then about three or four years ago, I thought to myself, you know, this is a big joke. You know, if, if I'm taking myself seriously as a writer, trying to communicate these ideas, you know, I've got all this stuff from my childhood in the 70s and the 80s, you know, I should really be taking this a bit more seriously and maybe write this story. And so what if no one's going to read it? You know, the most important reader is yourself. And so then I finally didn't listen to the, the wise old owl of the BBC anymore and finally and reluctantly started writing about Northern Ireland. And uh, much to my surprise, the books um, have done pretty well. He has left the BBC now. You'll be glad to hear. Yeah. Um, Stuart, you, w w when you started, you're kind of, I suppose, one of a number of us who have gone post-Troubles. Um, and so much so, actually, that we've gone kind of beyond it and almost it's, it's in the past now and it's not something we deal with. But obviously with the 12, um, it's very much a post-Troubles book. And I, I kind of, 
I feel the way that Northern Ireland is, and I, I'm sure people are fed up hearing about it, but Northern Ireland will never get a truth commission. That will never happen. Uh, because while a lot of people feel that they want to get to the truth of things, nobody wants to see the people who did all the bad stuff getting away with it. Um, and the tension between those two things will never allow it to happen. And so I think the closest that Northern Ireland will ever get to a truth commission is fiction. Uh, and most specifically crime fiction, because that's, it's dealing with those issues of justice and injustice and the extent to which lawmakers are lawbreakers. And, and the Twelve is very, very much of that and very concerned with that kind of looking at the cost of the troubles. Was that a deliberate um, motivation for you or was it just you kind of... Because I know it started as a short story for you. Yeah, I mean, the... the uh, can everybody hear me okay? Yeah, sorry, just you, acoustics are strange, sorry. The... Um, it's funny, Adrian was saying about being warned off writing about Northern Ireland. It was the one place I did not want to write about. I, I wrote two novels previously to the Twelve um, that will never, ever see the light of day. Oh, go on. No. <laughs> Frank, quite frankly, they're rubbish. Um, they will never, ever be read. Um, but one was set in Florida, where I've still never been. And the, uh, <laughs> and the, the, the second was set in uh, Manchester, or at least I lived for a couple of years. Um, but I did not want to write, write about Northern Ireland, and I certainly did not want to write about the Troubles. Because um, like most people in Northern Ireland, I just... I want to keep that in a box away from me somewhere, you know. Um, but the idea of the story presented itself, and it started as a short story. And um, that I let set for a month, and they kept nagging me this idea that I really wanted to be a novel. Um, so it was kind of, in spite of myself, I wrote about that particular topic, the post-Troubles thing. But yes, there was a certain amount of, um, I guess, angst being worked out in that book. The, the, you know, the, I think there was a, feeling, a general feeling at that time, uh, this is 2007, I wrote this book around the time of the St. Andrews Agreement. There was a general feeling that, okay, we know this is better than what we had before. We know it's not a perfect piece, but it'll do. But there was also this feeling under the surface that they got away with it. You know, there were People, the people who had profited from conflict were now profiting from peace. Um, and yeah, I think there, a, a certain amount of anger about that fueled that story. But I kind of got it all worked out in that one book. Um, and it's, as, as each book has gone on, it's moved further and further away from the troubles yeah. as a context or as a driver for the story. And um, to the point now where I don't feel I need to address that at all anymore. But I think that in itself is just a reflection of Northern Ireland moving on. I was going to say, because the, the, your, your most recent Those We Left Behind is, it's a psychological thriller, and it's about a, a child killer and, and the consequences of it. So while there is still that issue about what happens to somebody after they've done something wrong, it's not kind of immediately a Troubles book. Um, do you feel we've dealt with it? Do you kind of feel that the Troubles are something? Because I'm sure, I don't know, we could do a show of hands about how many people are sick about hearing about the Troubles, but the five quickest hands to go up are going to be up here. Um, no matter what you think. So do you feel that we kind of have moved beyond that now? And I, th I think I've moved beyond it, but I think there's a lot more to be written about it right. by other people. Um, Adrian's been doing it with yeah. the, the Duffy books, um, you know, which are set in, in the very heart of the Troubles, really. Um, but it's, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, this, but you know, the best fiction about any conflict doesn't come along until the conflict's over. And you think about 
say the state of cinema during the Second World War, while the Second World War was going on, you had Went the Day Well and Mrs. Miniver and basically propaganda pieces. It wasn't until years later that people started to look back more objectively and just tell stories that were set in that context. Likewise, Vietnam. And within Northern Ireland, uh, staying in cinema for a moment, you've had, there's been two brilliant movies over the last couple of years about set in the heart of the troubles, one being Good Vibrations, the other being 71. And you could argue that neither of those movies are actually about the troubles. But they're two of the best movies ever made about the Troubles because they're not about the Troubles. They're about stories that just happen to take place with that background. But there, I think there are, there are going to be a lot of writers going to come on and going to explore that territory. Um, I've, I've trodden that ground myself, and I'm probably not going to go back there, but I think there are other writers going to have more things to say about it. I think part of the trouble, too, though, is that history is written by the victor, but there is no victor in Northern Ireland, so the histories are kind of having to be written by by everybody else, I suppose, by us. Steve, when you came to write The Defence, um, not only did you kind of leave the troubles behind, but you left Northern Ireland behind, and you said it, I know you're a lawyer yourself, but you said it as a, a defence attorney in uh, America. Again, was this a kind of, when you started writing, did you think, I just don't want to touch Ireland or Northern Ireland? I mean, I know when John Connolly started writing, he deliberately chose not to write in Ireland, and his yeah. argument was because if a crime happened in Ireland within 15 minutes, everyone would know who had done it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yes. So it would be the apart shortest the, book in history. Apart from the PSNI, of course. No, uh, the PSNI <laughs> would know, they'd just not be able to prove it. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so was this a deliberate uh, choice, or was it again uh, just a case of the story that presented itself? Well, it was a bit of both. Um, uh, I sort of wanted, I've, I've always most, mostly read American crime fiction um, and American thrillers, and uh, uh, I wanted to do something like that, uh, but this, for the story that I wanted to write, it wouldn't have worked if I had said it in the UK. Um, uh, in the UK, we have a dual system of representation, so we have barristers and solicitors. And at that stage, writing my first book, I didn't think that I'd be able to write a legal filler with two lead characters, especially where one of them's doing all the sexy stuff in court and the other one's, you know, filing paperwork in the office. It just it wouldn't have worked. Uh, and of course, the other thing was, I mean, I'm, I'm still a, a solicitor now in Northern Ireland, and I, I, if I had been working as a lawyer during the day and coming home at night and writing about lawyers in Northern Ireland, I think I probably would have gone insane. So it was a, an escape for me. Um, it was escapism for me. Um, so yeah, but uh, I mean, it's the way I, I came to write the book. Um, I hadn't written any fiction at all. I'd written screenplays when I was about 18 or 19. I never got anywhere with it. Uh, and my mum was the one person who sort of encouraged me to write. And then she passed away in 2011. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm gonna have another go at this. And uh, so I wrote the book for her. Um, and I was sort of dealing with a lot of issues, I had a new baby, so as much as the book um, is an escapist piece of fiction, it was helping me escape from all the stuff that I was dealing with then, and escape from Northern Ireland, which is no bad thing. No, I, I'm still in shock that you think the stuff that lawyers do in court is sexy. <laughs> Seriously. Well, it can be. I've been in court as an observer, I shouldn't oh, point yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sexy didn't spring to mind. Um, it does raise something, actually, because Stuart, you and I are at a disadvantage here that our other three panellists all have legal backgrounds. Um, to, to what extent do you find that kind of helps in, in, in terms of the writing? I'm going to throw this open to, to everyone. Or, or are we at a, a disadvantage in that, Stuart? Or do you think we're at an advantage because justice and the law are two totally different things anyway? I, I want to say, um, after you've gone to law school and you've had to read those 17th century cases, 
everything is just fantastic after that. You can read any novel, you can read any style, because after you've struggled through like 30 or 40 pages of a 19th century law case, just everything is fantastic. So it makes your reading life a lot more pleasurable. But do you find you're kind of bound by, well, real, because I mean, let's face it, we all stretch credibility at times and we all, do you kind of find you're bound by, no, that definitely wouldn't happen, he certainly couldn't do that, or do you kind of think, well, it's, I'll, I'll kind of play with it here. Do you, do you feel res restricted, I suppose, by kind of the legal background? Uh, well, I don't think you feel restricted by it. I mean, uh, obviously for the more dramatic, you want, you want uh, court scenes to be dramatic and exciting um, because, the, you know, in real life they're not really, but they, they usually are in fiction. Um, same with detectives, you know, most detectives spend most of their time uh, at desks, you know, doing paperwork or not out, you know, hustling f fences and all this sort of thing. So. Uh, to an extent, you have to suspend disbelief and you have to make it exciting. So you can bend the rules, but as long as it works within uh, what you're trying to achieve. Like what I wanted to do was, um, uh, with the courtroom scenes, is to look at the language and how lawyers use language. Um, so when someone's cross-examining, uh, it's uh, like my character, Eddie Flynn, used to be a con artist before he was a lawyer. So in the courtroom scenes, it explores those skills which con artists have and lawyers have. So there's misdirection, manipulation, persuasion. What a con artist does to a mark is what a good lawyer does to a jury. And that's what I wanted to explore. But obviously you have to keep it real and within the confines and how it's really done. Um, but I think coming from a legal background, yes, apart from having to read all the crap uh, that you do have to read, which is of no use to you when you go into practice whatsoever. Um, you may as well have done a metal work. Uh, but when you do come into practice, you learn when you get a case, you have a responsibility to tell that person's story. If it's a civil case or it's a criminal <coughs> case, that's what you're there to do. You're there to give that person a voice. So. In terms of me writing fiction, uh, I'm used to telling pe other people's stories through evidence, through testimony. So it probably helps with storytelling skills. I also find, you know, um, just because I've, I've used real stories, that, I mean, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing in a way, but you know generally the kind of the, the libel guidelines that you can skate around. Yeah. And also I think it gives, I mean, I've argued this with practicing lawyers, um, which I never practiced, but I think it gives you, particularly when you're dealing with real stories, a forensic ability to get down and find the deep structures in the story and find what's important. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that was the most useful tool. I think, I mean, I, I admire you, Steve, because I, I was thought of going on in practice law. Lawyers start to think like lawyers after about four or five years of practicing and think along very narrow channels, which I think is the, the antithesis of, of, of what you need to, 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 to write. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you do. Um, like, at any time, I would have maybe 200 cases. So I can't spend, uh, and this is true for all lawyers, you can't spend so much time delving into everything. You have to be able to say, okay, what do I need to prove for my client? And you go A, B, C, D, and you focus on those things. So it does give you that. And I suppose that can help you know, in fiction too, because you're looking then at the little points and structural points that you have to hit. I think the, 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 in terms of realism and so on, it's... Um I think what we're going for most of the time is authenticity rather yeah. than realism. Yeah. It, as long as you have the feeling of this, that this has weight, this could exist in the world, rather than necessarily being a catalogue of procedures. Yeah. Um, I made the mistake, the, the, my book, the book was just out, it was left behind. I started writing it actually in 2012, quite a while ago, when I, it died on me. And the reason it did so was that because it involved a young guy coming out of youth custody, the first thing I did was I took a probation officer to lunch. 
And I filled the notebook half full, just notes about all, all the forms that have to be filled in, the steps that have to be taken, the hostel that he has to go to, all this detail. And I wrote about 13,000 words, that novel, and all I did was regurgitate information. And I had this sort of mindset, I've, I've, I've spent time finding this out, now you're going to bloody find it out too. It was, like a, real, it was a real sort of dogged thing, like I've, I've learned this and I have to relate it. And I think there's a danger then of realism taking over from your primary job, which is actually storytelling. Um, and when I, I had to set that book aside and leave it and write a different book and then come back to it once it got that push for realism out of my head, once I could just get on with telling the story. It, it kind of leads me on to a question about research. I, kinda, <coughs> I, I feel I should contextualize this, perhaps. Um, and this doesn't do myself any favors, but when I wrote Borderlands, which is my first book, um, I did no research on it at all. I just wrote a crime novel. Um, and then whenever I discovered it was going to be published, I kind of panicked. And I thought, I'm going to need to go and actually check up the stuff that I have in here. Right down to things like what color the crime scene tape is and things. Um, and the, the hero of Borderlands was a guard. Um, and I lived in Northern Ireland. And um, the, the day that I, I found out it was been published, I thought, I'm going to need to go over and, and with a list of questions to ask the guard in Lufford. Um, and I was, I was out, I remember this very well. We moved house and I was painting the fence and I was painting at Red Oak. Um, this is significant because I was wearing a white t-shirt and a pair of blue jeans, splattered with red oak paint. <laughs> and I, I went over to Lufford and went into the Garda station and said, look, I'm sorry, you don't know me, broad, dairy accent. Um, and I said, I, I've written a crime novel and I was wondering, could I, could I ask you some questions? And the guy kind of looked at me and raised an eyebrow, which I assumed to be an invitation to continue. Um, and I said, can you tell me where you keep your guns? Um, <laughs> and, this is not a lie. I am not making this. He said, there's a cabinet just in around the corner and we keep the keys hanging under there because the guards don't carry guns because they're guardians of the peace. Um, since then, I have learned the necessity of, of research. But what I wanted to ask all of you in terms of at, at what point, as Stuart has said, at what point can research actually become kind of constraining where you worry about, oh, I have to include all of this information to show that I've checked it up. Uh, because I remember reading, uh, there, there was a... a, a a first uh, draft of a novel um, that I was sent when I was doing a, a workshop uh, and somebody had started and the, the constable, police constable arrives to the detective and says sir I've put up the crime scene tape around the scene that we put up to ensure that the scene isn't contaminated and you kind of think well if the, the inspector needed to be told that he probably has been promoted far beyond his means but you can <laughs> kind of see why you kind of that urge as you say to, to to show your research. So can I ask all of you, to, to what extent, how much research do you do before the book, um, and, and to what extent do you feel it kind of constrains you? And Owen, I'm going to start with you, because obviously, because of the true nature of your books, yeah, it's probably... Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I find that um, I, I, I tend to start with a very loose knowledge of, of the story first, and, and, and work through that, and work the book through that, and then do the, the detailed research afterwards. A friend of mine, a film producer, was writing a, a was uh, working on a script about a man who climbed Everest, and I said, John, you, what research did you do? And I said, I climbed, I climbed Everest. <laughs> I, 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 that, 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 that's too much, you know. <laughs> but the strange thing is, you, you find that, and I used to think there was some kind of alchemy of art, that if you get, um, quite often I, I would not know something in the book when I was writing, but would actually arrive at the true thing which actually happened when I researched it afterwards. I thought there was some kind of magic of art. And then I kind of realized that life tends to work in, in, in a three-act structure, beginning, middle, and end. If you know the first two acts, you tend to arrive what, what happened. Yeah. It's my, I, I agree totally. I, this, the lesson I learned really was to... Um, very rough research to get started, enough to get you through 
the story and then come back afterwards and apply the detail because then afterwards you know where the detail matters. You know where that little bit of colour yeah. is actually going to have some impact. Um, and I, I mean, I find myself, but also, strangely, as Owen says, I find this as well. There's a lot of stuff I've just guessed at. As I'm going to actually find out it's not been too far from the truth. Possibly because it's just a matter of logic at times. Um, but I, what I did find very, very different, there's a very different thing, and this be something that Owen can speak more about, is uh, my fourth book, Rat Lines, was set in 1963 in Dublin. And that's a whole different kind of research. That's re it's, you're not researching how a gun works, or what a procedure is. Or you're researching what people wore, how did they speak, what were the, 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 the morals of the time. And with that, it became much more important to actually talk to people and get a feel of things. And, but I, I find that's a much, I personally find that a much more difficult kind of research um, and a much more in-depth research. I mean, you must, so that's, you're doing a very different thing than, say, than most of us would do in terms of, well, actually, Adrian, you're, you're written since set in the 80s as well, so you're the same as you. I mean, Adrian, is yours kind of knowledge or research? I mean, is it just kind of looking back or is it? Uh, well, I would rather do the research or indeed anything rather than the writing. Uh, I'd, I'd rather just do anything rather than actually have to sit down at the computer and, and so I will get lost in the research so like um, I, I think there was a, a remark um, in one of the books where he was talking about travelling along the M60 in Manchester and so I found myself it was the one line whether he was actually whether the M60 was really built in 1985 and I spent about a day investigating the whole uh, system of who invented the motorways, where they came from, you know, wh whose idea was it to have a ring road run Manchester, you know, were people affected by this? You know, I, I spent about um, six or seven hours, I was fascinated by the, the whole concept of the M60, you know, for this one line thing, and I thought, oh my God, now I have to go back to work. I've thoroughly, I've thoroughly exhausted this subject, and now I have to go back and actually do the writing, so... Um, and I love Wikipedia. I mean, I can, I can go down that Wikipedia rabbit hole for about four or five hours. Just, oh, really? Errol Friend lived in um, um, Kilkeel in the 19th. So I'll look that up and just go, oh, that is fascinating. His father was a professor of zoology. And then you'll, you'll, just, you'll just get lost in that, in that rabbit hole for hours and hours and hours. Because the actual writing process, uh, I do not really um, enjoy that much. Um, it's interesting what Steve was saying was about it being escapism. At the end of a hard working day, for me, it would be um, additional torture at the end of, a, <laughs> at the end of a, a hard day. I remember I was researching the Nameless Dead. Um, part of the plotline involves children um, who had died um, at, at birth and then they weren't baptized. And because they weren't baptized, they couldn't be buried in a graveyard. Uh, and so they were buried in kind of islands and borders and, and beside rivers and so on. Uh, but the year that the book, the year in which the child had died was 76, and I remember having to research whether or not disposable nappies had been in Northern Ireland in 1976. Um, and I discovered that they had. I discovered they were introduced in June of 1976. And I got this one. It was online. It was just whenever you're kind of talking about going down a rabbit hole. I found this person who had an encyclopedic knowledge of nappies <laughs> and when they were introduced. And he, he wrote back to me and he said, yes, they were in June 1976. In fact, I have one of them here. And it was, it was afterwards that I discovered, now I've never met him, but it was afterwards that I discovered that he buys these nappies on eBay and he wears them. So, star child, if you're out there, <laughs> I salute your knowledge of nappies. 
Please don't come up and speak to me at the signing table. Um, so you'll get an email. I'm in Derry. Do you want to meet up for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> what did you be wearing? Yeah. <laughs> we can be wearing matching. Uh, uh, Steve, in terms of research, because obviously I mean, your knowledge is going to be of Northern Irish law, did you do a massive amount of research in US law? or I did. There's, there's sort of two aspects to the research that I do for the books. The first aspect is the legal procedural stuff. Um, I mean, the basic <coughs> trial process, cross-examination, direct examination is kind of the same because it's the same sort of skills. And I had been uh, taught advanced advocacy by uh, an organization called NITA, the National Institute for Trial Advocacy in, in Boulder, uh, Colorado. They go all around the world teaching lawyers, look, these are the best lawyers, uh, trial lawyers in America. They're going to teach you how to do it. So I had that knowledge, and I do a lot of um, uh, research on the legal procedural stuff. And then I leave most of it out. Because that's the stuff that you know, even lawyers find boring. Uh, I'm not interested in, in the procedure, really. Um, I'm more interested in the reader's sort of pulse rate. But, but the aspect of research that I really enjoy is what I'm sort of trying to do is in each book, um, I have an expert witness. And I let Eddie have a go at the expert witness, because that's what you know, kind of lawyers like doing. Because there's all these you know, TV shows like CSI, and uh, at the end of the episode, well, we've got the guy's DNA. That's it, that's the end, he did it. That doesn't mean that evidence, even if it's right, is gonna get in front of a jury or that the jury will believe it. So um, that's only the start of the process, not the end. So in, in the defense, there's um, a, a forensic handwriting expert, uh, um, forensic document examiner. And I looked at that, that discipline, and did a lot of research on that. How would you tear this guy apart, even if he's right? And in the second book, um, I sort of looked at gunshot residue. And that's sort of an escape. I'm learning more about that, so I enjoy that sort of research. But it's looking at it from those angles. Can I, I, just, when you talk about research as well, I mean, when I wrote The Blue Tango, which is the first book of the, of the Blue Trilogy, it was about the murder of a 19-year-old girl in Belfast in 1952. And I realised at the end, by the time I'd finished the trilogy, where all that came from was a drawer in our hot press at home and lining the drawer with an old Belfast Telegraph uh, local newspaper from 1952, yellowed, falling apart, and there was a photograph of this hauntingly beautiful 19-year-old girl, and underneath was the judge's daughter slain, was the headline underneath it, and it's all that atmosphere and texture, and you talk about writing about Dublin, and, and it, it, you know, sort of going back into the 50s and 60s, that's what you're looking for, you're looking for those little, those nuances and, 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 and textures, and all research is no good without that. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the beauty and, and the mystery, if you like. I wanted to ask, just, I, I'm aware of the fact we're moving towards um, questions from the floor, so there's one question that I kind of wanted um, to, to, to hold back, and we'll just kind of open this one up to discussion. Um, Ian Rankin, a couple of years ago, kind of said after the whole Tartan Noir and then the Scandi Noir that it would be Irish Noir next, um, and we're all still waiting. Um, and there has been a kind of a, a rise of things like the fall and so on, although arguably... The fall doesn't really need to be set in Belfast mm, to work. Um, it could work anywhere, I think. It's not, and, 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 and that's not disparaging it as a show, but I don't necessarily think it's a Northern Irish programme. It is a programme set in Northern Ireland. But what I wanted to ask to the panel in general, do you find the branding of being an Irish crime writer helpful? Or do you find that, it is kind of, that, that there is still a, a reluctance uh, from people maybe to engage with Irish crime because people assume that it's going to be the IRA and the UVF and petrol bombs and, and so on. Um, I'm going to open that up. And again, maybe I should contextualize this in that uh, when Borderlands came out, the cover for Borderlands was of a river everywhere in the world except Northern Ireland. 
And in Northern Ireland, the biggest bookseller in Northern Ireland said, no, we want a different cover. We want an American cover. And so they put a burning car on the cover. Yeah. The least American thing, the most Northern Irish thing that you could think of. And I kind of wonder, is that, do you kind of feel that the, the Irish crime brand restricts? I, I, or? I, I think it's like, a, it's like a blessing and a curse. I mean, if you're, um, if you're a Norwegian crime writer, it's so easy to be a Norwegian crime writer. You've got the landscape, you've got the mountains, you've got these attractive blonde-haired people going around, um, ending up dead. Whereas if you're Northern Irish, you've got these pasty people <laughs> in unattractive t-shirts, like walking, and it's raining all the times. It's, it's gray and miserable. So you've got this, um, you've got this interesting challenge of making that world both interesting and, um, and fascinating to readers not from there. But it's actually, um, I think it's, it's more of a blessing than a curse because I think for the Norwegian and the Scandinavian climbers, it's just too easy. It is just too easy for them. I mean, they've got this huge momentum. They've got all, these, all this press. You know, they could basically um, write any old story and it'll get published. Especially in America, it'll sell buckets of copies. Whereas we have to really struggle and make our books good. Because <laughs> we're fighting against the negativity and the indifference. So that's why your general Northern Irish novel, you just go, oh, this is actually pretty good. Um, whereas you'll, I won't mention any names, but you know, the uh, standards of some other um, fiction is perhaps not as high as it could be. Okay, I'll, 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 we I'll, may I'll, come back to that one. I'm going to leave that one sitting there. Particularly <laughs> <laughs> considering my publisher publishes a lot of Scandinavian crime fiction. But anyway, um, <laughs> but um, the, uh, um, I, I do think that the Northern Irish thing has been a, was an issue for me, certainly in the early days. And the, and the most manifest issue was the title of my first book, which was originally called Ghosts of Belfast. And it's still called that in America and in translation pretty much everywhere else except here, where it was called The Twelve. And this is, this is back in 2008-2009 when the, the book was being ready for publication. And <coughs> it was basically, but to me, it was just going to be too hard to sell. And, and there, at that time, certainly, there was a resistance to fiction set in Northern Ireland, nowhere more so than in Northern Ireland itself. Um, which is why I don't say that as a, I'm not sort of complaining about that, because I know what we do it too in Northern Ireland. Um, but I do feel there's been a change since then, and I think certainly the success, the success of The Fall has helped, uh, and Brian, your sort of breakout as well, I think, has, has, has uh, helped knock down some of those walls. I think there's a realisation that drama or fiction, whatever, crime, whatever, can be set in Northern Ireland, and it doesn't have to be about the legacy, the troubles, and so on. Um, but I noticed the thing recently, I've been doing a lot of library events over the last few months, and... I have one very specific change I've seen, is that for the first time people are saying to me, I like seeing the places I know yeah. in your books. And that hasn't happened over the last six years until this year. People are starting to say, oh yeah, I liked it that I knew that street that you're writing about. So I think within Northern Ireland itself, there's been a change that people are a bit more open to reading about their own neighbourhoods, um, more so than they were five, six years ago. I probably, you know, kind of predate you, you guys in, in, in writing about this. I mean, I think for a start, you write the books you were put on earth to write anyway. Um, and, and you use your, your own locales. But I remember I wrote a book called Resurrection Man in 1994, published in 1994, and I gave it to my, <laughs> I gave it to my wife, to, manuscript to my wife then, my girlfriend, to, to, to read, and she, sat, and she spent, sat there for four or five hours without saying a word, read her, her way through the whole thing. 
and she put it down and she said, it's brilliant, which we can expect your girlfriend to say. Not always. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lucky man. But the, next <laughs> but the next thing she said, and it's stuck in my head since, is they'll never forgive you because you're not supposed to bring art to bear on these things. You're not supposed to make art out of it. You're, you, other people develop an art for you and, and present you with how these things should be seen. Yeah. And if you break out of that, then you're in trouble. And I mean, I've realized what she meant over the, kind of the intervening 20 years. Steve, what I mean, uh, obviously the, kind of the Irish connection doesn't really impinge on the content of the book, but <coughs> did you find, because you are kind of one of the newest voices, did you kind of find that the rising tide of, of Irish crime kind of floated all boats, um, or, or was it a case of you kind of looked at what was going before you went, Jesus, I'm not doing that, I've got to go somewhere else? <laughs> well, I know, I mean, I, I think it's been great. I mean, uh, as you were saying, I mean, there is a, a burgeoning scene now, and it is building, and there's more new writers coming through, you know, like Jared Brennan and, and Anthony Quinn and, and, and Claire McGowan. Um, so, I think it's been great. It's been really helpful, and I don't know if it's, if it's helped me get published being Irish or anything like that, um, but I, I think we're all very supportive. We all sort of know each other, um, and I think all of that's very good. Um, in terms of, of the influence on, on, on my book, I mean, I, I can't say that there has been. Um, I mean, Eddie's, Eddie's a lawyer, and I'm a lawyer. Um, uh, Eddie spends most of the first book with a bomb on his back. I grew up in Belfast. So <laughs> there's, there, there's little things like that, but no, um, I just think it's, it's, it's great. I think it'll only get better, I think. There's more to come. The one, the one thing that's, that's stuck out for me and it was highlighted to me, Adrian and I, um, over the last couple of years, edited a, an anthology called Belfast Noir for Classic Books. And they have a strict policy in terms of uh, gender makeup and, and other uh, diversity things. So it had to be half female and half male writers. And we kind of started in Belfast and worked our way out yeah. to fill up, fill, fill up the roster. We filled up the, the male quota instantly. And there were a lot of male writers we couldn't fill. Um, for the female rise, we had to go south of the border. And that's, that's the one thing I've noticed. Uh, Claire McGowan, I think, is, is the yeah. one female crime writer from Northern Ireland that's, that's, yeah, that's making Kelly through. Crichton, as well, has brought her debut out last month. Oh, really? So she, but she was a poet, actually, first, and uh -huh. was kind of come into crime. Uh, I'm not familiar with that to check out. But you, in the Republic of Ireland, there's been Tana French, yeah. Sinead Crowley, Arlene Hunt. You know, I could rattle off any oh, number of names. Yeah. But for some reason, in Northern Ireland, it's been very predominantly male. And I have absolutely no explanation whatsoever for that. I don't know why that is. Um, in Northern when, Ireland is quite a kind of patriarchal. Mm. The crime of, readers um, are still mostly women. Yeah, in Northern Ireland. the crime readers and the crime buyers. So it's a real shame that there are not more um, women writers yeah, from Northern Ireland being published. Can I, we have 15 minutes left, so can we maybe throw it out to the floor if anybody has any questions or would like to pick up on Adrian's um, comment about Scandi crime? And what I did wonder, actually, Adrian, just while we're kind of Bring waiting to get someone. Bring it on. <laughs> I wonder, to, to what extent do you think that, that BBC Four kind of allow for an intellectualization? I mean, the kind of the subtitling of programs. I kind of wondered that that yeah. was there people who maybe wouldn't necessarily have thought themselves to be crime fans well, you've got this, until you've, they started watching subtitles. You've got this very handsome actor from Belfast um, called Kenneth Branagh, and you can't put him in a Northern Irish crime drama, so you throw him over to Sweden, and he has to do a. Uh, he has to grow a beard. Yeah. <laughs> In high definition beard. Um, have we got any questions? Yes, gentleman in the front row. Oh, sorry, there's somebody up, the gentleman towards the back here first. So, Adrian, you put Inspector Duffy now into the house you grew up in in Cardiff Fargus. Yes. Now, it's obvious when you were growing up that you loved BMWs by reading the book. But 
the woman who lived to the left of your house when you were growing up now, did you fancy her growing up? <laughs> and does she still live in the house? Uh, I'll tell you a complicated story. Um, there was a guy two doors down from me, and um, he was a, quite a famous UVF commander, um, which is a, a Protestant paramilitary organization. He eventually um, went to prison for a, a triple murder, and, um, but he was released in 1998 under the Good Friday Agreement. So he is um, still walking the streets. But anyway, he's, for all intents and purposes, a serial killer. So he's a very, very, very scary man. But his wife was this winsome, gorgeous 22-year-old um, blonde with a, a purdy haircut. Remember the purdy haircuts from 1970s? And um, she was a hairdresser. And I used to go and get my haircut um, at um, her house. And I was about 11 or 12 years old. And she was absolutely gorgeous. And so she was the culmination and the, the, uh, the leading role in many of my erotic fantasies. <laughs> But it was always a terrifying experience to be at her house because while she was cutting my hair, she was standing over just, oh, hi, Adrian, how are you doing? Are you all right? How's school? And I was just besotted in love. He was pacing in the background, you know, with his big UVF tattoos. How long is this going to take? You know, when's this wee boy going to be out of the house? Does this explain why you first moved to America and then Australia? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was a bit of a complicated relationship. And I used to, it was the, as the poet Catullus says, Ode at Amo, you know, I used to love and hate going to get my hair cut because um, <laughs> uh, I would go and she would be there, but also he would be there. So it's a, it a quite a complicated setup. <laughs> I thought the man that asked that question, I thought you were asking from personal knowledge, actually. Yeah. I thought you knew the woman next door. And you were, <laughs> there might be a story there as well. <laughs> Sorry, the gentleman in the front here. Yeah, so, so many questions to ask this panel. This is a truly uh, thought-provoking discussion. I suppose the one that I'd like to ask the most is, given this, this incredibly euphemistic term, the troubles, and the sheer complexity, the ferocity of the history of the troubles. I mean, I'm a far left-winger. I've read a, a bit about it, but I'm not a historian. But I'm absolutely fascinated at what I kind of anticipate is this trajectory, given the explosion of the numbers of books, do you see the development of Irish noir, Northern Irish noir, as going in such a direction of development that writers will even become targets for violent men and or women on both sides of the Troubles? that they will actually become targets for intimidation and violence? Because it seems to me that what you were suggesting, and I'd like to know more about it, is that you've got a community, perhaps on both sides of the fence, who crave justice, and they're not going to get it from any kind of conventional legal means or a commission, a truth commission, and yet that need for justice is not going to go away. It's a, a right market for something cathartic, um, that I just kind of like am fascinated at where you see it going uh, and, and how dangerous that could be, because we all know how dangerous artists, to tell the truth, can actually be. Um, it's, a, it's a great question, actually. I, I, I don't know if anybody... I mean, I'm certainly fr from my own point of view, and if any of you want to pick up on this, by all means do, um, I, I, I kind of find myself being wary um, about, about what I write and, uh, and the, the one that I'm writing at the minute, there's a kind of a paramilitary grouping, a new paramilitary grouping in it. And even with the rising, I'd done something similar, which was about dissident republicanism. Um, but I, I kind of made up a group 
called The Rising because I was just wary about using real titles for, for, for kind of present groups, particularly if you live in the area. Um, I, I think it makes it more challenging. The difficulty is, as is always the case, it's a minority who make the most noise. The vast bulk of people in Northern Ireland are just totally sick and tired of it. And you're absolutely right, the Troubles was just a very nice phrase that people were able to put on. I mean, it kind of suggests that there was a bit of a row between neighbours over a hedge, um, as opposed to 3,000 people being killed over 30 years. Um, and I think possibly for, for us, I mean, certainly, uh, I have four kids. When I, when I was growing up, my mum and dad um, would take us on a Sunday. We used to go to Donegal, which was about 20 minutes away um, from where I grew up. Um, and you went through a military hangar to get there. Uh, and you had a 17-year-old squatty telling your 40-year-old father to get out of the car so we could search him. And, and, and that was perfectly normal. Um, and you knew where the border was because you, there was a kind of a quarter mile of military installation to get through. Uh, so that you could get to the other side to buy Chef Brown sauce, which my mother used to go for every weekend. Uh, we had a lot of brown sauce in our house. Um, whereas now, I mean, our kids don't know where the border is. Uh, the only demarcation between the north and the south is the quality of the tar on the road. Um, and, and when it snows, you haven't even got that. And so our kids don't kind of understand. And what confuses it more, because we live near Donegal, is that Donegal's in the south in terms of the republic, but it's actually to the north of the country. Um, so you had north to go south, which is kind of confusing for everybody. Um, but I think most people don't mind. I think most people kind of read it and say, yeah, that's, that's fair enough. But yeah, certainly I have felt, I don't know how the rest of you felt about the, the you're wary. There are certain people um, or certain kind of characters. And we've, I mean, as Adrian has mentioned, his neighbor who was a serial killer. Um, did well, did that I, impact I, on I your... I think, well, I know that Stuart has and I have. We've had some online trolling yeah. um, and yeah, some absolutely. online... Um, in my case, I've had a few online threats and a few things on Twitter where people... Um, mostly, it has to be said from the loyalist um, factions, in my case, where people have said, because I've said bad things about the loyalists, I'm a traitor and a Lundy and, uh, uh, you know... and So I've had, I've had a little bit of that, but... Um, and I've tried to... Techniques, I mean, te first technique is to try and engage them, um, um, which hasn't been that successful on my part. And then the other technique uh, was just to ignore them, and that has been a lot more successful um, because they just move on to another person to, um, to, to hassle online. But uh, I know Stuart said this. matters that much on that level. I mean, yeah. right at you know, Resurrection Man, um, you know, it was quite specifically about a group of serial killers who, who I didn't name, and if I'd gone back and written the book now, I probably, I probably would name them. Yeah. Um, but then when the book was filmed, um, that brought a lot of death threats, and you kind of realise that when, you, when, when you're, you're writing a novel, there's two people in the room, there's you and an individual reader, but when you make it into a film as a public event, there's you as a filmmaker and the rest of the public, and it, it was an entirely different thing. Um, you know, but there, there, was no, there was no Twitter or anything like that, then it, it tended to come in the kind of the... Um, you know, the letters cut out and stuck on the sheets of the newspaper, which I was quite, I, quite impressed by that. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes, though, I mean, possibly a generalisation, but the people who are likely to make those threats aren't necessarily the people that are likely to read books. Um, so, I don't know. The, the most grief I got was actually from Irish Americans. Okay. Um, and I would say grief, I mean, it was online. It was, uh, there was nothing that was ever really a problem. My, my favourite Amazon review I've ever had as a one star on Amazon.com for The Ghost of Belfast, my first book. And the subject line of the review is the word bollocks. And um, this guy takes into how I'm not properly Irish because I'm a Protestant. 
and I went to a Protestant school. And we played cricket at our school. He actually mentions in the review of the book that they played cricket at my school. <laughs> and and uh, all of these factors disqualify me from writing a book about Northern Ireland. So I shouldn't have done it. Um, thus the title, Bollocks, in his review. Um, and, I mean, the only, the only person did I was ever... Did you respond in that little comment box underneath to the review, or did you just... No, do... no, I, I, I just kept it. I almost felt like framing it at times. This is my very favourite review ever. Because I've done that where you respond to... Oh, don't do that. Yeah, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I think I, what you could do in a future book is just have someone beaten to death with a cricket bat. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I, I, did, I did get some bother off, off a former IRA member who is now a crime writer, but that was all, again, yeah. online, just in terms of some reviews and so on. But the strangely, the angriest response I ever got to any book was for Ratlines. I got the angriest emails about that. And it was from people who were saying I was too hard on the Nazis. <laughs> um, and I got, I got, for a week solid, I got CC'd on emails that this man was writing to an editor of a newspaper. And his first line of the first email is, Stuart Neville is a mischief-making scamp. And he went on, he went on to detail how no matter what the Nazis did, the British were worse. And he would, I mean, each of these emails is maybe 1,500 words. Seven days in a row I got these emails from this guy. But it was, that really shocked me that um, there were more people concerned about besmirching the legacy of, of the Third Reich than there were about Irish politics. No, I was going to say nothing to do with impugning Charlie Howe. No, <laughs> which is actually, impossible. no, no <laughs> nobody complained about uh, Charlie Howe's portrayal. That's because you were kind to him. Yeah, <laughs> no. Any more questions? I think we have time maybe for one or two more. Gentlemen down here. So just following on from what you said about Charlie Hoy, and I know, Adrian, you use lots of real people from the Troubles um, feature in your books, so I was wondering how you go about researching that. Are they what you think they'd actually be like in that situation, or are they your sort of imagined versions of those people? Um, well, I've, I have to do a, a dance again with the libel uh, lawyers if they're still alive. And, um, and if they're not still alive, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a legal opinion. Yeah. <laughs> the most succinct answer of the weekend. <laughs> we now have time for two more questions. Gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> on the front row. A uh, question for all of you. Um, either from your research or anecdotes or anything, what do you think is your most quintessentially Irish moment or piece of knowledge that you would put into a book? Ha ha ha. I think I'll start with this one, actually, if that's okay. Whenever I was researching, because um, I, I kind of, one of my series of books is set in the border, so it's about how the guards and the police get on with one another, or do they get on, or whatever else. Um, and I remember an old man came up to me at one of the book readings. Uh, very early on, uh, and he told a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it is a perfect description of the guards in particular. Um, he was driving from Oma to Letterkenny. Oma's in the north and Letterkenny's in the south. And a friend asked him, would he collect an elderly relative of, of the friends in Straban and bring him across to Letterkenny? Um, so he said, of course, that's okay. So he stopped in Straban, picked up this old man who got into the back of the car, sat in the back of the car, drove him through the military installation um, in Delifford, and was talking away and realized that this man wasn't responding. Uh, and when he just had got through the military installation, having passed by a checkpoint of soldiers who had checked the car, he realized the man was dead. <laughs> and they had taken a heart attack in the back of the car, possibly prompted by the checkpoint. Um, so he drove to the Garda station in Lufford and went down terrified and said, look, I, 
you're not going to believe this, but I, I collect this man. I don't even know him. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what his name is. I picked him up. I was to drop him at the bus station in Letterkenny. I just brought him across, and he, he's dead. And I had nothing to do with me. I swear, nothing to do with me. And he said the guard kind of looked at him and sucked through his teeth and said, mm, you couldn't do me a favor. <laughs> Getting a body repatriated over the border is a nightmare. You wouldn't just drive him back over, would you? <laughs> So that's <laughs> anybody else want? <laughs> I, I, I sort of dabbled with it. Um, my um, the short story I wrote for, for Belfast Noir, The Grey, was a little part of it about electricity fraud um, in, in Belfast, uh, which was rife because um, uh, nobody got prosecuted for it. Because if you want to go and serve a summons on somebody in West Belfast for electricity fraud, you need a helicopter, you need the army, you need <laughs> it's a hundred thousand pound operation, so nobody got prosecuted for it. But it was actually my grandfather who uh, discovered that in the electricity meters, if you cut a Polaroid photograph, slipped in the back of the meter, the meter wouldn't turn. So he was going around his streets and selling with these wee cards, <laughs> which was all fine um, until uh, he got a knock on the door. And it was the IRA because their favourite thing was uh, after the, um, uh, the electricity man had come round and emptied the meters every month or so, uh, the IRA would rob them because, you know, ba <laughs> balaclavas and, and iron jumpers cost money. So uh, they robbed this guy expecting to get a couple of grand and they got about £4.50. <laughs> and they were going, sort of a society, is this? Nobody pays their electric bill. They're sort of disgusted at the, at the people. So they were around and, and found out what was happening and knocked on my grandfather's door and said, look, come on here. We need to make money too. It's a great place. Have we time for one more? I think, no, I think, uh, sorry, that is us, I am afraid. I know there was a couple of other people um, who had questions. However, we will all be in the signing tent uh, immediately afterwards. So please do feel free to come along. And any questions you have for any of us, I'm sure we'll all be delighted to answer. On your behalf, can I thank own Stuart, Adrian, and Steve, and yourself for coming along. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources, and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.